Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good afternoon or evening, wherever you are. It's just after um, midday uh, on the West Coast. It's uh, mid-afternoon on the East Coast of December the 12th. And in America today and over the last few days, a lot of people have been questioning what exactly it means to be an American. We've seen these flags waved, flags claiming to be American. Many people reject that idea. Um, Many Americans are indeed shocked and and disgusted with the use of American flags at uh, the events, the the riots, the insurrection in Washington, D.C. last week. I think what's happening are Americans are thinking, what exactly does it mean to be an American? Now, my guest today on the show isn't writing about politics, but his book, his new book, seems to be about what it could and should mean to be an American in the early part of the 21st century. Uh, Dr. Carl L. Hart um, is a very distinguished professor at Columbia University, and he's the author of a really interesting and controversial new book called Drug Use for Grown-Ups. Dr. Hart, or perhaps I can call you Carl, have you been thinking over the last few days about what it means to be an American? Um, no, I haven't been thinking about that over the last few days. Um, I've been thinking about that for most of my life. Um, and so um, uh, the, the events of the past few days are uh, uh, appalling, but not surprising. And they don't really um, alter my view about what it means to be an American. The reason I ask you um, is because your book is is peppered with ideas about uh, Americanness and, and what it should mean in terms of drug use. Uh, you begin your book with a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Um, uh, Jefferson said, if people let government decide what foods they eat and medicines they take, their bodies will seem to be in as sorry a state as the souls of those who live under a tyranny. Is the core of your book, uh, Carl, that uh, we should be allowed to do whatever we like with our body as long as it doesn't hurt others? Yeah, that's the, it's not the only the core of my book, it's the guarantee of the country with the founding document, the De- Declaration of Independence. Uh, it guarantees uh, American citizens, um, at least three birthrights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, Those sort of birthrights have been um, um, uh, distilled down to mean nothing, to mean just jingoistic patriotism, uh, things that you say. But when you think about life, liberty, that means you have the right to live your life as you see fit. 
and and uh, as long as you don't uh, prevent others from doing the same. Um, and the pursuit of happiness, happiness, it doesn't guarantee you happiness, but it does guarantee you the pursuit of happiness. And so some people, for example, use drugs in the, the pursuit of their happiness. Um, as we have, uh, uh, as the years have gone on, uh, we have kind of put drugs in this special category where, um, yeah, you can have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, uh, but without drugs. And it's like, wait, 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 who made those rules? Um, <laughs> well, we know uh, who made the rules, uh, Dr. Hart, and, and it certainly wasn't guys like you in the first place. It was, uh, I guess, characters like Jefferson. You, you, you quote the, um, the Declaration of Independence, uh, you say it guarantees, uh, guarantees each of a certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes. One of the controversial things in your book, at least in my mind, is that you argue uh, controversially, and I'm not sure everyone would, would, would agree with you, that drugs enable happiness. Is that something you would argue universally to most people who take quote unquote illegal drugs does that make them happier well okay um let's not talk in the extremes all right and so when i and my goal here is not to have everybody agree with me i'm a scientist and i don't really give a shit what people think i only care what the data say and what the data say and also uh, even an anecdotal evidence says that uh, you take some drugs and they certainly can uh, increase your euphoria, happiness, even if only temporarily, but they certainly can do that. Uh, that's one of the things that they can do and they can do a number of other things as well. So um, uh, if you are a responsible adult, for example, your car, driving your car as opposed to walking can bring you more happiness. But some people drive recklessly and they get in uh, traffic accidents and so forth. Uh, and so that's not a happy situation. So you have the possibility of having these other effects from driving, of course, just like you do with drugs. And what I'm arguing in the book is that when people use drugs in the pursuit of happiness, as long as they're not bothering other people, why should society care? The conventional argument, uh, Dr. Hart, is that people take, and, and, and I'm speaking at very much of an amateur here, and someone who has a fairly conventional take on this stuff, is that a lot of people take drugs in order to be happy. They want to be happy, but it doesn't ultimately make them happy. Are you suggesting that the data suggests otherwise? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I'm also suggesting that my personal experience uh, uh, suggests otherwise. Yeah, it's a very uh, personal book, isn't it? It's a very confessional book. Um, uh, there's a lot of scientific data in there, but it's also, it's not a confessional book. It's a very human book. And it's a book about humans and the, and the sort of damage that has been done to certain human beings as a result of our pearl-clutching, uh, puritanical perspective on this. 
And um, so I'm asking Americans, if you are truly American and you understand the founding documents and you understand the promise of the founding document, you will see that the practice, our practice, is not consistent with the promise. And I'm asking people to reconsider and to think about liberty from a really serious perspective, not from some middle school jingoistic perspective. I mean, the fact is, it's like when I choose to drink some water, uh, does the government say, nope, you can't drink water? Why should it be different if I choose to take a psychoactive substance? Uh you say uh, about your own drug use, you, 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 you suggest this at the beginning, it's very confessional. You say, my conscience will no longer allow me to remain silent about my drug use. And you suggest at the beginning of the book that you haven't always been as public as you should have been. Um, has drug use cheered you up? Has it made your life a lot more cheerful? Uh, uh do you do any caffeine? Do you what? Do you do alcohol? I do tea. Look at that, and that's my drug of choice. It, I yeah. can't do without it. Right, and does that make you happier? Do if you do you drink alcohol? Um, uh, uh, certainly, it certainly can. But um, there can be situations in which it's not as good as other situations. But there's a lot that goes into drug effects, as I try to explain in the book. It is, uh, when I talk about this in terms of the environmental setting, in terms of the person and their, their current mood state, all of those sorts of things, whether they rested, whether they had uh, a good night's sleep, whether they're eating well, whether they take, whether they are taking care of themselves, all of these things play a role in determining the ultimate drug effects. So to say, like for someone to uh, say, can drug, do drugs do this? Uh, one thing. No, drugs do a wide range of things. They do a wide range of things. And, and let's, let's get into the details, because as you, I, I think the core argument in your book is that we can't generalize. And that, that's one of the problems. Um, I'm curious as, as, as to your take on uh, psychedelic drugs. Uh, there's a new quote unquote, and I'm getting this from Literary Hub, a renaissance of psychedelic drugs and a quest for medical legitimacy. I have some friends who have a startup uh, focusing on this. Um, do psychedelic drugs, uh, should they be having a renaissance? And talk to me a little bit about the current state of um, not drug use in the United States, but the types of drugs that are being used uh, and which are more and more, more or less fashionable. Um, in recent years, uh, it's been fashionable to um, take psychedelic drugs to explore uh, your spirituality, uh, to be more connected with the earth and a wide range of sort of uh, effects that people are seeking. Drugs like psilocybin, drugs like ayahuasca, which is DMT, um, people have used in their quest to be one with the universe, for example. Um, and um, many people report uh, being better people as a result of having done this. Uh, they report this being a positive thing, um, and well, that's a good thing. Um, but the thing is, and we are becoming more acceptable 
of that sort of uh, drug taking behavior in our society. Uh, but when we think about drugs like heroin and cocaine or methamphetamine, we don't think of those drugs as producing um, these sort of enlightened states that people are seeking from psychedelics, when in fact they are capable of producing these enlightened states. Um, um, but we have decided that some drugs are bad and other drugs are not. And this sort of determination is not based on pharmacology, it's based on sociology. It's based on American racism. Um, and so these are the kind of things that I lay out in the book. Let's talk a little bit about that American racism. Um, you, again, begin the quote, uh, begin the book with a quote from James Baldwin, the very distinguished African-American writer um, and polemicist. Uh, and, and Baldwin says, or wrote, if you want to get to the heart of the dope problem, legalize it. Prohibition is a law in operation that can only be used against the poor. Um, we had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Elliot Curry's book, uh, A Peculiar Indifference about uh, African-American deaths to violence. Uh, 162,000 African-Americans lost their lives to violence in the first part of the 21st century. Uh, that means nothing if we don't have some sort of comparison. I don't know what that yeah, means. Yeah, I don't know what it means either. And of course, that includes many, but but, but to violence. Um, is, uh, w w in, in terms of your, your use of Baldwin's quote at the beginning, what is the connection between the exploitation and abuse of the poor and drug laws? Well, uh, Baldwin made that statement in December 1986. Uh, and in October or September 1986, we passed uh, some of the most draconian drug laws, most restrictive drug laws. And we claim to be looking at their uh, poor uh, minority communities in uh, urban areas. And what Baldwin was saying was that these new restrictive laws will only harm the poor uh, because uh, the folks who have means, the people who are connected, social capital, they will circumvent these laws anyway, and they'll still get their drugs. The only people who you're going to be arresting are these poor people. And he was right. The evidence shows that he was absolutely right. Those laws punished crack cocaine violations 100 times more harshly than powder cocaine violations. Uh, that is, when somebody get caught, gets caught with a small amount of crack cocaine, they would be required to go to jail for five years minimum. Um, and to trigger the same sentence for something like powder cocaine, which they are the same drug, by the way, uh, 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 you would need to have a hundred times the amount uh, to trigger that same sentence. And so um, Baldwin, he was right. He was one of the few people who were saying, this is silly. This new law is silly. Uh, and he was also, uh, uh, he didn't say it explicitly, but um, he was also maybe suggesting that we behave like we claim to be. We behave in the way that we say, uh, in the way in, 
in a way that's consistent with those people who we think we are, who believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, this it's is, more the, the law itself that you talk about. Of course, is more than silly. It's profoundly unjust. It, it resulted in in a, in, a, in an epidemic of uh, of, of uh, imprisonment for African American men, young men in particular, over over crack cocaine. I've heard the argument, Carl, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that one of the reasons why the opioid epidemic has not been treated with the same sort of criminal aggression as crack cocaine is because opioids has affected young whites rather than young blacks. Is there any truth to that? Um, so I lay this out in the book. Um, the opioid epidemic, there's that, that's so loaded. Uh, so when we say epidemic, what are we talking about? Are we talking about use rates? Are we talking about deaths? What are we, are we talking about addiction rate? What are we talking about? So we can unpack all that in a second, but let's just stay with this, this opioid epidemic and we treat it differently. Um, first of all, we're not treating it differently. Um, when, when, we, when we were concerned about crack, there were more white people using crack, but they didn't end up in jail. Black folks were the ones who ended up in jail. With opioids, the same is true. Uh, opioids are predominantly used by white folks, but 80% of the people who are arrested for something like heroin are black and Latino. This is a similar pattern that we saw with crack cocaine. So when people say that we're treating this differently, you know, that's just not true. So would it be fair to say then that the problem in America is not with when it comes to when it comes to African Americans and drugs, the problem is the criminal justice system, not drug laws. Um, no, the problem is not the criminal justice system per se. The problem is us Americans, because the criminal justice system does what the citizens want it to do. So that's uh, it's with us. Um, and so, if we just think about the basic core concepts of the book. It's really simple. It's simple for any idiot to get. The Declaration of Independence promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are birthrights that can't be taken away. Now, if somebody is using drugs, they're putting that into their own bodies and not hurting anyone else. Why is it my business? This is very simple. It's very simple, Carl, but that constitution resulted in a history of slavery, of the massacre of indigenous American people, of all sorts of other profound injustices. Why do you fall back on the constitution? Okay, so the men who wrote, the, I, I was talking about the Declaration of Independence first. Let's just stay with right. that. So, so let, let's focus on the declaration. I, I meant the declaration. So the men, the men who wrote the declaration were like other humans, imperfect. But the principles that they espoused were better than them. And so those principles remain true to this day, even though those guys did not practice the principles. We had to have people who protest, who wrote books like me and people who engaged in civil disobedience. Um, we can think about Thoreau, we can think about Martin Luther King, we can think about Rosa Parks, we can think about all of these people throughout history 
who have been try who has they have been trying to get the the country to live up to its promise. Now we're it's we are not perfect as people, and we never will be. But that does not absolve us from the responsibility of trying to be more perfect. It's interesting that you touched earlier on the argument of some people that certain drugs were gateway drugs. And I know in a tongue-in-cheek way, you've suggested that marijuana might be a gateway drug to the White House. Explain this. How, how could marijuana be the gateway drug to the White House? Yeah, I was making a point. Um, uh, the point, I was being flipped, if you will, but the point was... Well, there's a uh, degree of seriousness in it as well, I think. Uh, no, because when we talk about gateway, it's a silly concept. And so I met it with equal silliness. Mm. Now, and I'll tell you why it's a silly concept. Um, it confuses causation with correlation. So let's talk about correlation for a second. These, this is, these are the things that we teach first-year college students. Um, uh, it rains and people put up umbrellas. Now, some Martian from outer space may come and see every time that it rains, there are umbrellas up. And that person may think, or that being may think that, oh, the umbrellas cause the rain. That would be that person confusing correlation with causation. One thing does not cause the other just because they are together. Now, um, uh, and so when we think about gateway, people oftentimes say, well, marijuana is a gateway to quote unquote, unquote uh, harder drugs like cocaine or, or heroin. It is true that uh, um, uh, uh, a large number of uh, people who use heroin use marijuana before they used heroin. That's true. But it's also true that the vast majority of marijuana users never go on to use heroin. Uh, just like it's also true that a large number of heroin users drank milk when they were younger. But we would be silly to say that milk is a gateway drug to heroin. Um, so it's would it be fair to say that there is no link at all between drinking milk and taking heroin. Whereas five or ten percent of people who take marijuana will then go on to take heroin, uh, and uh, the, the the connection there is there can be a connection, uh, perhaps not for everyone, perhaps only for a small percentage. So, say speaking as a parent, I would still be a little nervous about encouraging a child to take marijuana if I knew that five, ten, or fifteen. Wait, 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 hold on, hold, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's not do this. What parent encourages their kid to use marijuana? So let's not do this silly shit. No parent who is responsible would encourage their child to do marijuana, just like no parent who's responsible would encourage their child to do alcohol before they are of a certain age. So let's not do the silly thing. That's, let's have an adult conversation. Let's move on to opioids. Again, you obviously know a huge amount more about this stuff than I do. Uh, but I got the sense from your book that you were suggesting that the, the so-called opioid epidemic is wrong. Is that fair? 
Should we even use that term? Um, so let's unpack this whole thing. Now, we have an opportunity here to do a real serious public service. So let's, let's focus on that and uh, not so much about what uh, uh, some catchy shit that people say. So let's, let's focus on that for a second. The epidemic, when people talk about the epidemic, the question becomes, what are they talking about? Are they talking about addiction rates? Are they talking about use rates? Are they talking about death rates? And so you have to break down each of those sorts of things. Let's take something like, let's start with addiction rates. Let's take something like, oh, heroin. Uh, the vast majority of heroin users are not addicted. Uh, and not only that, the number of heroin users in the, our country has remained relatively stable since 1980. So we're talking about uh, maybe before 1980, we're talking 40 years of stability. And it's always been considerably lower than something like cocaine or something like marijuana, considerably lower. Uh, you have about 200 to 300,000 Americans using um, heroin, for example, uh, in a year or so. And then you have 2 million cocaine users. Marijuana users, it's like 28 million. And so you have uh, considerably more of those users. So when we talk about this epidemic, it's not in addiction rates. It's not an epidemic there. Um, let's talk about deaths. We're concerned about deaths. We see this all the time in the media. Uh, I think the preliminary numbers from, from last year is something like 80,000 Americans died from a drug-related overdose. Now, you see that big 80,000, and then you uh, the first sentence after that, we have uh, a comment about opioids. Um, but when you look at the numbers, you see that, oh, about 40 to 50,000 of those deaths the person who died had heroin or some opioid in their system. Now, that still does not tell you whether the person died from that opioid. It only tells you that the opioid was in the system. What we know is, the majority of, is that the majority of people who die from drugs do so because they've taken um, uh, uh, multiple drugs, like, like taking opioids with a large number of other sedatives or with other sedatives, something like alcohol, benzodiazepines, or nerve medications. All of those things can increase the respiratory uh, suppression effects of opioids. And so what that tells you is that rather than frightening your population, you should do a better job of educating them and saying, if you're going to use opioids, and particularly if you are a novice, do not combine it with another sedative. That, that's one thing. And another reason people are dying from opioid-related deaths is that people are uh, tainting or contaminating their or adulterating their heroin with something like fentanyl, which is a lot more potent than heroin, which means that it takes far less amount of this drug to produce the effects, including overdose. And that's because people don't know that their drug is tainted or they don't know that they don't have heroin, instead they have fentanyl. Uh, 
Now, there's an easy fix for that. And I talk about this in the book. Um, in Spain, in Austria, in the Netherlands, in a number of countries, what they do is that they offer free, free drug checking services. That means that people can submit uh, small amounts of their substance for chemical analysis. And then they get this printout of what's contained in the substance. And, it, and, if, it, and if it contains some contaminant that might be dangerous, people don't take it. Uh, we can do that here. We haven't because we've had this conversation at this silly adolescent level that we become moralistic and pearl clutchers. And it's just, it's frustrating to me because I'm watching people die needlessly. This is not complicated. I get it. So when we see, and I, and I did a check before this conversation, we see these headlines about uh, Madison area suicides and opioid overdoses up in 2020, or the um, or, or or the Ohio uh, AG warning opioid epidemic is getting worse. We should address the, the bigger structural issues of of education and s state policy, and and I think that's. Um, it's really simple. It's a key difference between the U.S. approach to drugs and the European one. Uh, not, Carl, not, all, not all of Europe. Not, so we don't want to say all of Europe because some places in Europe, like France, they're more restrictive. Uh, they, they, they follow the U.S. model. Um, uh, so not all of Europe, some of Europe. Carl, you suggest, as, I, as, as, as we've discovered, that... Um, that your argument, at least, is that we should have the right to responsibly take drugs to make ourselves happy, and that's built into the core of, 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 of the U.S. Constitution, of, um, of, of the notion of liberty here. There are people, though, who have argued that the idea of happiness is dangerous. Uh, um, uh, Aldous Huxley wrote, as you know, a very famous book at the beginning of the 20th century, Brave New World, which is now being uh, put to screen on Peacock, suggesting that uh, a, a dystopia of the future would be one in which everyone would have access to drugs that would make them happy, uh, a drug called Soma. Um, some people have argued, for example, Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death, that Huxley's dystopia was a much more accurate prediction of what would happen in America than, than other dystopias. What would you say to people like Huxley, who argued that um, happiness is itself a kind of dangerous drug. Uh, I wouldn't argue with him. It's silly. Um, it's very simple. As an adult, do you want people telling you what to do? When you're not bothering anyone, you're a responsible citizen. It's a simple question. I will choose to go and eat what I like. I don't want people telling me that I can't have something uh, that I want. And I'm not bothering anyone. I'm not harming anyone. I'm not preventing anyone from enjoying their liberties. It's very simple. Um, and I don't understand why we can't entertain that core. Uh, you, you know, it's like um, we are adults. Do you want people telling you what to do? When you're not bothering anyone, this is, uh, um, it's blowing my mind, actually. Well, here's a, this is an interesting argument. Drug use for grownups, chasing liberty in the land of fear. Wonderfully provocative book about 
essentially developing a, a, a Lockean argument in favor of our right to take drugs to make ourselves happy. Uh, Dr. Carl Hart, uh, I, I would strongly suggest everyone read your book. What else should people be reading? I know you're in uh, your office in, in Columbia University in Manhattan in early 2021, these strange times. In addition to your book, what else would you, would you suggest people read? I suggest people start with uh, my book called High Price. It's a primer for people who are um, clutching their pearls right now. Um, and it's a book and, uh, where um, I'm earlier in my development. And so uh, it will help people to come along. Well, for those of us still clutching our pearls, um, uh, Dr. Carl Hart is very good at setting us straight and um, and educating us about the rights and wrongs of drug use and drug policy. I want to wish you a very happy and particularly healthy 2021, Carl, because uh, we all need to be happy uh, in such strange times. And I look forward to having you again on the show to discuss drug use and abuse. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.